So the first reading is on page two, and it is from Genesis chapter two, verses 19 through to 25. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, sorry, he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Okay, and the second reading is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and that is on page... That is on page 829. Okay. So, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's come before God in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for drawing us together this morning, that we might come under the teaching of your word and think through important issues that we might respond appropriately and so we pray, Father God, that you would grant us uh, uh, wisdom from your word and hearts that are teachable. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, friends, one of the big issues we face today is the movement to redefine what we mean by marriage. Uh, in Australia, it's a movement which has been steadily building momentum for quite some uh, period of time. In fact, until about 11 years ago, 
the idea that marriage was a union between a man and a woman was so well accepted that it was not considered necessary to, to spell it out uh, in the legislation, which is the, uh, the Marriage Act of uh, 1961. But in 2004, the federal government came to the view that the time had arrived when it was a possibility that such a definition of marriage, that it is a union between a man and a woman, could in fact be challenged in the High Court. And so uh, what they did was that they, uh, they presented an, um, uh, an amendment to the Marriage Act, or they, uh, uh, the, the Marriage Amendment Act of uh, uh, 2004, was passed through the federal parliament and the amendment uh, sought to define marriage and define marriage in the following words and I quote, uh, it said, it says marriage means the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. That's the Marriage Amendment Act of 2004, uh, section 5, subsection 1. Did you, did you hear that? Marriage is the union between a man and a woman. Uh, so it's uh, gender differentiated uh, to the exclusion of all others. So it doesn't involve anybody else. It's... It's not something which is forced, it's voluntarily entered into, and how long is it for? It's for, it's for life. That, that is Australian law, and that is the bill that was passed in, 19, in, in 2004, and it was passed with the support of both major sides of politics, and it passed without fuss. Now, it seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? very long time ago because since then the movement ha for change has shifted to a, a political campaign to amend the Marriage Act once again but this time to do so in the opposite direction. Uh, a number of bills have been put to the Parliament and have failed but as individual MPs have been lobbied um, by various groups and now another bill has been presented and is before our parliament. The issue is therefore very much alive. And it's spurred on by a, the referendum which took place in Ireland a month or two back, which legalised, for the first time, legalised same-sex marriage in a jurisdiction by popular vote. And so there are many who are saying that therefore Australia will inevitably follow suit. In fact, to not follow suit would be, would be backwards. To not follow suit would be uncivilised, is what's being said. Now, it's not often that we address political issues in our preaching, but uh, there's now a break between sermon series. We've, we've finished off the current series on Exodus, uh, there is a, uh, a currency in terms of the social and political environment 
right now. And God's word actually has a voice on the topic of marriage. And because of those factors, it seems therefore that it's appropriate for us on this occasion to address this particular issue from God's word in a topical sense. So our, the preaching this morning will not be uh, the same as what it is usually where we just work through a passage and, um, uh, and draw out the significance from a particular map passage as part of an overall series. This week, uh, we have seen Christians being derided in the, uh, derided, uh, in the media for, for simply stating the Bible's teaching on marriage which actually, by the way, happens to be the law of Australia on marriage as well. And it's not just on ABC television on Thursday night's Q&A. It's also been happening in local communities. For example, the Bathurst Presbyterian Church uh, over the past week included the following words on their street sign. They've got one of those street signs where you can put in letters to create a, a message every week, a bit like the Uniting Church uh, here in Port Macquarie, and they had a couple of messages on that particular street sign, but one of the messages said this, and I quote, one man plus one woman equals marriage. Jesus, Matthew chapter 19. Simple sign. Um, the Bible's teaching. The law of Australia. And yet the backlash in the community and in the media, both mainstream media and particularly social media, was immediate and was fierce. It was ferocious. Because it's a hot topic. And friends, it's, it's a big topic as well, isn't it? It's big because to have an, underst- an adequate understanding of the issues involves not only knowing God's purpose for marriage, but also having a, a sensitivity to the, uh, to the effects of the fall on, on human sexuality and also on uh, gender identity, which is actually a different issue. And it's important also for us to consider the forgiveness, the acceptance and the, the restoration which comes through the gospel. But our starting point must be God's purpose for marriage. That's the starting point. That's the launching pad for any thinking and any discussion on this particular issue. Because in the clever slogan-driven campaign and the steady drip of media uh, uh, stories and so on, we're being told that the issue is about equality And we're being told that a change in definition will not affect marriage. In fact, we're being told that it will enhance and it will um, improve marriage uh, if a change is made. And so therefore, we as Christians need need to have clarity in terms of what God says about marriage, which he has quite a lot to say about marriage. And... Uh, the, the core issue, though, is that which we find in the Genesis account of, uh, of creation uh, back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, which you might want to have open uh, in your Bibles, actually. It'll be very helpful. 
One of the striking truths that we see in Genesis is that when God created man, he created mankind, he created us to be relational. And uh, we see that in the first chapter, in chapter 26, when uh, God said, let us make man in our image. Now, the two things that strike us about that is the use of the word plural in respect to God himself, which tells us, and we see it expanded further through the scriptures, that God is relational uh, within himself. God is one God, but three persons. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit, uh, all different, all equal, and all relating to one another as one God, three persons. And we see that we have been made in God's image, uh, which means that, um, amongst other things, that, that it is within our engineering that we too, are, as God is, we are relational beings. Now, uh, we know that from our experience, don't we? That uh, we humans, we, we need community, we thrive on community, uh, we, we love relationships most of the time. In fact, one of the uh, most, one of the worst punishments that you can inflict on a person is to put them into solitary confinement, uh, just to cut them off from relating with any other person. Uh, and that's considered the, the, you know, the, one of the worst forms of, of torture, solitary confinement, because, because it's not how we're wired. We are engineered to be relational beings. And there are, of course, all sorts of relationships. We're all engaging in a relationship right now. Our uh, human life is, is, is built on uh, communities and uh, a whole different range of types of communities and relationships. And that the, the relationship which is specifically dealt with in Genesis chapter 2 is, the re- is that core relationship which is the building block of community and society, and that is the relationship of marriage. And it tells us a number of key things about marriage, which I just want to briefly draw out, and then we'll think through some of the uh, further implications. And first of all, we're told that God has given us relationships, God has given us marriage for the sake of relationship. Now, it might seem obvious, but have a look at chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, where where we see the the, um, the specific uh, nature of the marriage relationship. In verse 19, we're told that now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that would be its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So uh, what we see here is, uh, you know, I, I love animals, I love pets. Uh, I you know, remember once meeting a lady who told me she didn't need human beings because she had her dog. I thought that's actually, there's something, something distorted there because, uh, because that is not the relationship which was going to give Adam what he, what he needed. 
Uh, Adam's companion was to be like Adam. Have a look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought it to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. That is, Adam's companion was to be similar in the sense of being human, but different in the sense of being, um, being female, uh, being, being complementary. And so the picture of, of marriage in Genesis is that of a union between two beings that are similar but are different. And we know that of the differences between men and women. In fact, our bodies are different. We have parts of our bodies which can only fulfill their full purpose when they are brought into the one flesh union with the body of someone of the opposite sex. The reproductive system, friends. The reproductive system can only fulfil its full purpose in a one flesh union with the opposite sex. Uh, and our reproductive organs are the means by which humans fulfil the other key reason for marriage, which in chapter 1 verse 28 is to be fruitful and to multiply. All this sounds like I'm stating the obvious, doesn't it? <laughs> of course it's common sense. Of course it's obvious. But in the current debate, it's not being said. The current debate is more about the rights of adults than it is about the generating, the identity and the well-being of children. But God's purpose for marriage is for marriage to be the normal means by which two different but complementary people in a loving, exclusive and lifelong relationship produce and nurture children. Now, marriage does not always produce children um, for various reasons. Uh, nor does marriage guarantee that both a father and a mother will raise the children of that marriage. And that's because of issues such as the death of a parent or divorce or just good old-fashioned sinful parenting. <laughs> you know, where, a, for example, a father might be physically present but, but um, emotionally and psychologically very distant and so on. So it doesn't always work out that way, but marriage nevertheless is the relationship which God has provided and it is the normal and the natural way that families happen. And friends, within families, a father and a mother 
make a different contribution. Have you noticed that? Uh, in the current debate, we're sometimes being told, but no, they don't. We're sometimes being told that a, that a mother and a mother uh, will do the same job, if not better, than a mother and a father. Or a father and a father will do the same job, if not better, than a mother and a mother. Uh, that is that there is no distinctive difference on the basis of the gender of the parent. Which, frankly, for myself as a father, makes me feel insulted. Uh, to, to, to think that uh, I'm being told that, my, uh, distinct, that I have no distinctive contribution to make uh, into family life and into, into parenting, that I'm exactly the sa I'll make exactly the same contribution as Cassie. That's ridiculous. Sorry, getting carried away there. <laughs> but throughout the Bible, and most notably in, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, it's ridiculous because I think I do have a very distinctive role in the nurturing of my daughter as a, as a, as a father and in the nurturing of, of, my, of my son. And I don't expect that Cassie will have the same role. She will have a, a different <laughs> complementary role because of the gender differences between the two of us. But throughout the Bible, notably in the passage which was read to us in Ephesians chapter 5, we see some of these differences articulated. So in Ephesians 5, the other day, a husband and by extension therefore a father is to be the one who steps up to, uh, to taking responsibility and to leading his wife and his children spiritually and to do so sacrificially. He is to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Earlier on in Ephesians, that a father is to teach his children about the ways of the Lord and he's not to exasperate his children. There is a distinctive role for the father there as there is for the wife and the mother who with her contribution of her character, her nature, her gifts, is able to support and encourage him in doing that which is ultimately important, which is God's purpose for marriage, which is to, pro which, which is to, to produce godly offspring. I think that's in Malachi. I'm off my notes here, friends, so that's why I'm getting all tongue-tied. All right. So it's that uh, that goal, uh, which is the which is normally naturally done in the context of family life, to uh, to produce and to raise children who will know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and serve their God, their Creator. If the husband has a distinctive role in that. The mother has a distinctive role in that and complementarily they work together to achieve God's purposes and to say that, uh, and it's this complementary relationship which in Ephesians 5 uh, we're told expresses uh, the union between Christ and the church. Which can never be expressed in a relationship between a a woman and a woman, or a man and a man. Marriage is a relationship which has been profoundly bound together by the exclusive one flesh union that takes place, which is a profound union not to be played around with, not to be exercised outside of a lifetime commitment, 
It is a relationship which is profoundly bound together by the exclusive one flesh nature of the union between a man and a woman. A union, that kind of union between a man and man is impossible because it doesn't complete the union or a woman and a woman. It's that relationship which produces and nurtures children who therefore have the benefit, which ought not to be underestimated, of the biological relationship with the parents. Now, having said all of that, we need to say that life is complex, is it not? And the reason that our society is debating marriage at all is not because we have this you know, we've had this fresh revelation that suddenly marriage is really important. Uh, not at all. Some of the people who are advocating same-sex marriage have for the last 30 years been telling us that marriage is not important at all and not necessary. It's just a piece of paper. You don't need it. The reason that we're debating marriage is because of same-sex attraction and, and gender identity issues. That's the reason. So I'll say thing, some things about that. The question people ask about same-sex attraction is what is its cause? Um, is it nature or is it nurture? That is, is a person born that way or is it the result of their circumstances of life that has created that within them? Or is it elements of, of both working together, or is it sometimes nature, is it sometimes nurture? Now, the danger here is gross oversimplification uh, and to, um, uh, to draw conclusions that are uh, not well informed and, uh, and unhelpful in either direction. Uh, and so I don't want to do that. The other issue that I'm conscious of is in a, in a group this size uh, that there may well be uh, uh, folk here for whom this issue is not academic. Uh, that it affects uh, uh, people perhaps here personally, uh, either directly or through someone who they care for and they love. And so uh, that, I think, needs to be acknowledged. What we do know from the Bible, friends, is that we live in a world which has fallen. We live in a world which is not actually the way that God intended it to be. And we're told in Romans that the whole of creation groans in eager anticipation of the re revelation of, the, of, of, the, uh, of heaven when God will set things right. We live in a world where we are born with a sinful nature and <clears throat> additionally we live in a world where our bodies and our minds are not always well. And we know that well, that affects every one of us, doesn't it? Either in a small way or in a major way. 
Uh, I'm wearing glasses because guess what? My eyes don't work well. Never have. Right? We live with imperfect bodies, with imperfect minds, and we live also with a sinful nature. And so in our fallenness, we struggle with um, physical issues. Uh, a person who has uh, a body with ambiguous gender, that's a physical thing. And that is part of what I've been talking about. But also in our fallenness, we, we struggle with sinful desires. Every one of us struggles with sinful desires. Desires which often involve expressing our uh, sexuality or just the desire to express our sexuality within the context of relationships that are contrary to God's will, such as with a person to whom you are not married. And so that covers both homosexual and heterosexual, which of course, friends, is the very reason for which Jesus came. I want to take you to a New Testament passage, and it's, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you wouldn't mind opening that up in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> On page 809, and this is an amazing passage because it gives us a, a little bit of a snapshot of the, uh, of the early church in Corinth, who they were. And have a look at verse 9 through to 11. Paul says in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, as I read through that, what leapt off the page for you? Were there any particular words that sort of leapt off and smacked you across the face and thought, yeah, you know, that's... What about... Um, was it the words homosexual offenders or male prostitutes? Did that kind of leap off the page for you? Well, friend, if so, let me draw your attention to some other words there. <laughs> let me draw your attention to the words idolater or, or greedy person or slanderer. Have you ever slandered someone? Ever said something about someone wasn't true because you wanted to you know, run them down? You know? Or sexually immoral. Yeah. Ever looked at someone lustfully today, yesterday? You know? I mean, this is, this is all, it's all sin, isn't it? It's all sin. And the Christians in Corinth, including the homosexual offenders, the male prostitutes, gets what? That was them. That was them. Now, in the current debate, Christians seem to be reluctant to use the word sin. And I think it's understandable. I mean, we hear of reasons why we don't agree with same-sex marriage, uh, good reasons, which I'll outline some of them later on. It's not good for society, etc. But you don't often hear 
people say, well, actually, because it's sin. Right? It offends, it's outside of God's purposes. But perhaps that's because we, we don't expect to get the chance to talk about that one very beautiful three-letter word in that passage, the word but. You see that word there? Absolutely sexually immoral, greedy, male prostitutes, slanderers, homosexual offenders. That's what some of you were, says Paul to the Christians. But you, you've been washed. And in the Greek he says it again. He says, but... You've been sanctified, but you've been justified. This is what you were, but that does not need to be your present or your future because of this word, but. What has happened to you? You have been. You have been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the living God. Now, as I've observed the present debate, it is so hard to ignore the vitriol. I, I really don't appreciate uh, being dismissed as being uh, homophobic uh, because I simply hold a particular view about what's good for society and what true marriage is. And I'm sure you don't either. If, if, if you hold this view. But with all of that vitriol and that, um, that, uh, the, uh, the rhetoric, what we need to do is to look at what, behind, what, at, look at what lies behind the feelings and especially for those who are directly affected. Because the issue is not really about marriage, is it? It's not about marriage. It's about acceptance. It's because people desire final, final endorsement. Forget about the legal technicalities of having registered relationships and the legal things that that actually already gives people. It's not about that. It's about final endorsement from society, that one last domino that needs to fall over, which is marriage, it's final endorsement from society that their sexual attraction or their gender identity is accepted and that by extension, therefore, that as persons, they are accepted. That's the issue. I want to suggest, though, that a change to the Marriage Act will not achieve what they desire. There is no denying the problems uh, faced by people who experience same-sex attraction or gender ambiguity. And I, I can't begin to imagine how difficult social circumstances are for folk at times. But the sense of acceptance which is so deeply craved is not going to be achieved through a change of legislation. Uh, it can only properly be found in a relationship with the living God by the forgiveness which we all need through Jesus and the repentance that is enabled by the Holy Spirit. Now, easy words for someone like me to say. Pretty tough journey, though, for those 
who are affected. And I don't want to um, understate that, uh, but it, I certainly do know that there are people with same-sex attraction who have turned to Christ and who over time have found this same-sex attraction reduced and heterosexual attachment uh, has developed. Having said that, I know there are others for whom that has not been the case, that they have continued to experience same-sex attraction but have made the decision to be celibate because they have found acceptance. They have found peace. They have found hope in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and have developed good friendships, meaningful friendships within the Christian community. And when you think about it, that is uh, not unlike the way what life is like for the multitude of unmarried uh, heterosexual Christians who uh, have desires, sexual desires, but know that they're not in a relationship where it is appropriate to express those, those, those sexual desires. And so there's issues, big issues there of self-control for the sake of godliness. And so in the present social climate, um, we as Christians uh, ought, where possible, to, to build friendships uh, and to, uh, to, to develop relationships with those who experience same-sex attraction and gender identity issues so that we can actually reach out uh, to folk with the gospel, which, by the way, is the same gospel which has saved us. Now, uh, I say this knowing that sometimes you can try and you, your, your efforts to connect with someone, your efforts to build a relationship is, is rejected. And so it's not always going to be easy, it's not always going to be possible. But to retreat away from those relationships uh, where there is a desire for us to be on the other person's part for us to be in a friendship with them, to retreat because of some kind of a fear uh, is just unhelpful. It's not, it's not right. That is homophobic. Uh, we need to actually be reaching out and extending love and grace through relationship for the sake of sharing the gospel. Now, having said that, uh, I want to say something slightly different about the political sphere because in the political sphere we need to recognise that the, the idea that a change to the Marriage Act is not going to change marriage uh, and it's going to only affect, it won't affect anybody else uh, is just nonsense. It's, it's untrue. It's proven to be untrue and it will have negative implications. First of all, it'll have implications for Christians and, and others in the workplace, not just Christians, but others who in conscience cannot support same-sex marriage. Christian business owners who 
are connected with the, in, with the wedding industry. Uh, for example, photographers, um, bakers, caterers, reception centre owners and so on who choose not to contribute their professional services to something which they believe is wrong, that is a same-sex marriage. And Christian school teachers who are actually not comfortable about, about reading uh, the story to their you know, infant's class about little Johnny and his two dads. Right? Uh, or Christian counsellors who take the position, well, actually, no, I don't want to be providing advice to two men as to how they can be having better sex with each other. Such people will be accused, they'll be sacked, they'll be sued, they'll even be prosecuted for discrimination. It's important to, to, to understand what discrimination is. Uh, if, if I'm a cake shop owner and a homosexual person walks into my cake shop and says, I'd like to buy a cake, and I say, no, I'm not going to do that for you because you're a homosexual, then what is that? That is, that's discrimination and that's wrong. But if a homosexual person comes to my counter and says, I want to, uh, you to make a cake for my wedding and I want you to put a picture of my husband and me, the two grooms on the cake, and I say, well, actually, no, I don't want to use my gifts to create an image of something which I believe to be sinful, I'd be happy to serve you on any other basis, but not on that basis. That's not discrimination. That's not discrimination. Uh, and yet, uh, in some jurisdictions, uh, that is, has been considered to be discrimination and people have been uh, being prosecuted, uh, even by, by, by state prosecutors. Uh, in the United States. And then, of course, there are Christian ministers who may choose to no longer serve as agents for the government, who may choose to no longer serve as marriage celebrants for the government under an act which endorses sin. So that's the first issue. It's in the workplace. So, by the way, on the church issue, uh, when the legislators say, look, we're just going to exempt churches from, from having to perform same-sex marriage, that's not the issue. The issue is, for some of us, we may actually not want to be connected with, a, 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 with an act which is endorsing sin. So we may actually choose to give up our marriage licences and to, um, to only conduct... Uh, to conduct church weddings and to say that if a person is married in church under God, then as far as we're concerned, that is full and complete. They are married because marriage in the state sphere is no longer marriage because <laughs> it doesn't fit the biblical definition. So a person could be married here. They could consummate that marriage. They could have children. They could, they could develop a family and be up to them as to whether or not they wanted to go to the government and get it registered because we'd be saying state marriage is not marriage anymore. 
So, so secondly, to remove the requirement for two people in a marriage to be a man and a woman also then opens the door to further amendments to the definition in the Marriage Act. The, the bill which is currently before the Parliament says this, and I quote, Marriage means the union of two people to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. Small change. But why only two people? Uh, I mean, why not three people or four people? Why not? Seriously. Uh, why to the exclusion of all others? Uh, why not have open marriages legislated? And why, what's this business about for life? Why does it have to be for life? See, these are Christian, context, con these are Christian concepts that are embedded into the current definition and once they knock out the, the key Christian concept of the union between a man and a woman, then everything else is up for grabs down the track. Now thirdly and most importantly, as Christians we need to do that which is good for our society. A relationship between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is not marriage. It's something else. And to call it marriage is outside of God's purposes for humanity because marriage is a creation ordinance. It's something not just good for Christians, it's good for all people because it's the way we've been engineered. To call the union between a man and a man and a woman and a woman marriage is outside of God's purposes for humanity, which therefore means it's not good. It also clouds the reality of sin because it's, endorsed, it's saying that what is sin is not sin and therefore clouds the necessity for people to come to Jesus to find the true peace, the true acceptance that can only be found through the gospel of grace. And finally, let me say that uh, it would be very difficult to reverse once it's put into effect. So at the very, very least, our governments need to tread very cautiously on this one. And all of this is the reasons why our eldership uh, will be encouraging our local member to continue with his current position, which is to vote against change. Uh, as we have done so in the past, we have met with uh, our previous local member and we've uh, to, spoken to him at length about the reasons for uh, maintaining the current definition of marriage. And I guess that you could take that as an encouragement for you to um, lobby yourselves as well, uh, to take initiative to uh, contact local members and also um, senators. But it's also why we should be praying for our government, um, praying for our society, Praying for, for marriage and, of course, friends, praying for the spread of the gospel because it's as people get to know God through Jesus that a whole of these kind of social issues may, may, 
make much better sense. If we want to change our society for the good, we need to keep on proclaiming Christ and forgiveness and the relationship that can be had with our Creator through Him. And we need to be people who are praying for opportunities that we might actually connect with people, perhaps from the same-sex community or some people who are experiencing same-sex attraction and actually reach out to them with the, with the glorious gospel of grace. So that's what I'd like to do now. I'd like to lead us in a time of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that uh, in the, uh, the messiness of life, this side of the fall, that you have uh, acted in history to bring about redemption and that you have given us the, uh, the, the hope of the future where all things will be made right once and for all. Father, we pray that as Christians that we would have a clear understanding of marriage that we would have an understanding of sin, a compassion for people, and a desire and the opportunities to share Christ with others. And Father, we pray for our society now. We pray for our government that you would, in your sovereignty, be overruling the desire to, uh, to redefine marriage Father, that um, it would, for the good of our society, we pray that you would work through the politicians to ensure that the definition of marriage as it currently stands is kept uh, so that uh, a lot of these problems which we've talked about can be avoided into the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.